am Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Today, my guest is filmmaker, community activist, and writer Lonnie Jo Lee, who has just published her first book, Unfit, the tale of one pregnant teen in the Bible Belt before women had choice. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So 1971, you were a teenager in Oklahoma in what you call the buckle of the Bible Belt, and your parents were Southern Baptists. At that time, you were 16 or 17? I was 16 when I got pregnant, and I turned 17 shortly thereafter. What kind of choices did you face being 16 years old in this context and getting pregnant? What were the options open to you at this time? I didn't really have any options. Um, Abortion was still illegal. I think it was okay in Colorado, maybe. They had just um, opened it up there. But that was um, anathema to the way I was brought up in terms of my religious upbringing. Uh, I couldn't keep the baby, and my parents wouldn't support me. I mean, I could run off, I guess, and go to San Francisco or something, but that seemed like not a possibility. And the the young man did not want to marry me, so what I was told I needed to do was just go to a maternity home. I was sent to a home in New Orleans, so most of the homes were uh, placed in larger cities because I guess there's more anonymity and you could hide a little better. But even in New Orleans... I was in the Southern Baptist home, but there was a Catholic home, and there was a Methodist home, and there was a Volunteers of America home just down the street. In the period from World War II through Roe v. Wade, a million and a half women were sent away to maternity homes to give their babies up for adoption. That's how prevalent it was in terms of women being told, you're not fit to be a mother because you're unmarried, you're too young, you're whatever, whatever, whatever. So it's sometimes called the baby scoop era because they came in and they scooped up our babies and took them away and gave them to more deserving people. And who was more deserving in this situation? Uh, two parent families, uh, you know, they parents who supposedly couldn't have children of their own, but that wasn't the case for my son. He was adopted into a family that had biological children, people who were religious. It wasn't just that I was a sinner or a bad girl. They really thought that there was something psychologically wrong with us to have sinned on purpose. So the baby had to go to somebody who wasn't unfit, you know, mentally. And so I was, I was deficient. We were wrong. We were bad. We were. And what did the moral retraining consist of? Like, what did you have to do while you were waiting to have your your baby in this this home? We had to see social workers. We had to see a psychologist. And we had lots of services, church services, Bible study, readings, that kind of thing. So can you tell me about some of the other girls that you met at this home? The other girls were like me, you know, most of the girls that were sent away were white middle class family or upper middle class families. 
um, the family sent girls away because they were ashamed and, and, you know, they felt like somehow they had failed, but the other girls were, yeah, we, I had, uh, one of my roommates was as young as 14. Um, the oldest resident while I was there was 35 and she, um, already had it, you know, five-year-old. And she was having, uh, you know, a baby with a married man. And he wasn't, you know, of course, men tell you all kinds of things. <laughs> but he wasn't going to divorce his wife. And so she had nothing. You know, she just couldn't keep a second child. So so even though she knew what it was like to have a baby and, you know, care for a baby, and she still, you know, was told that this was the what she needed to do this time around. So, yeah. Was there any option for girls to keep their babies or was part of the deal of going to one of these places is that you absolutely would be required to give up your child for adoption? The idea when you go is that you will give your child up for adoption. If you, I knew of two girls while I was there that did not do that. One just left before she had the baby and went and had a little apartment still in New Orleans, but she knew before she had the baby that she wasn't going to give the baby up. The other girl had her baby and her parents decided after she had the baby that they would support her, they would take care of her. And they came and got her and they got the baby. Part of the problem for a lot of families though was, um, we had to pay to be there, so it wasn't like it was just a, you know, even though they were taking our babies and they were going to charge the adoptive family a ton of money for taking the baby, we still had to pay to be there, and it was quite substantial at the time. I think it was over $300 a month in 1971. That's a lot. And and you, if you didn't, if you didn't give your baby up, that rate went up a lot because then they charged you for all the medical expenses in addition. So the three hundred was only for your room and board, so to speak, and then everything else would have been added on. And so they always kind of held that over everyone's head that your parents will go bankrupt if you change your mind. You have, you know. <laughs> Did you believe that you were a bad person? at that time? I did. I believed I was, um, I never believed I was bad because of the sex. I, I didn't get that, but I did. Be I believed I was bad because I gave him up more than anything that I somehow wasn't stronger, more courageous or good enough to, to stand up and, and put my foot down or, you know, say no, but I, I didn't know I didn't know how to say no. I mean, it was my parents and my pastor and my my school. I I couldn't I was I didn't want to risk being expelled from school or I mean, I lost all my friends anyway. I mean, so that didn't matter, but but yeah, so if you have all these people telling you that you're a bad person, you're an unfit person, it's hard not to start buying into it. A little just to try to fight it is so so difficult you know you, there's just this these warring things you know there's outside 
that you're starting to believe you're you're a bad evil person and and then there's this person no I know I'm a good person <laughs> you know like I'm just me I'm not I haven't changed I'm the same person I was you know before I got pregnant how is how am I a bad person now the outside felt that I was bad and evil but then I felt bad and evil on the inside too because I did give him up and yeah and I I hated myself for that for a long long time and of course your book complicates the nature of consent right I mean a lot of times the argument that's made against abortion is like well you always have the choice to give your child up for adoption oh no that's not really I mean a choice for for so many women it just was for me, it was the only option I had. Um, so that's not exactly a choice. Um, but again, it has to do with uh, if you if you do make it a choice to keep your baby, then then you have to have the support. But if you do make the choice to give your child up for adoption, then now it's a lot better for women that do it because there are open adoptions. And a lot of times they adopt uh, the birth mother gets to choose the parents and, and then can remain involved in the child throughout its life. So so that's a bit different than what I experienced for sure, where it was like, no, nothing ever again. You will never, you will say goodbye and that's it. You'll never see this child again. But I made a different ending for my story, but but a lot of women never do never, ever, ever know their children. And then there are a lot of children who... Who never know their mothers or, or yeah. who their, their biological families. I mean, that kind of grief that I experienced was akin to like when my mom died, you know, like it, it's gone and never coming back. That kind of, you know, relationship, that, that person, that, that voice, that, those eyes, and that requires a lot of a lot of therapy you need to have someone you can talk to about that because you're kind of going crazy in your mind and continuing to believe I'm a bad person I'm an evil person you know or I should be happy and I didn't feel happy I should be happy that my son had gone to a good home but I wasn't happy what would have happened had you kept your child in this community that you were raised well first of all and all across the country, um, if you were pregnant, you could be expelled immediately. And that was the case in the town I lived in. So I wouldn't have been able to go back to school. I wouldn't have been able to live at home. I wouldn't have been able to go to church. I wouldn't have been able to see my friends. I wouldn't have been able to. And were abortion available at that time? Would that have been an option? No, abortion wasn't legal across the country. The only state that had it was Colorado, and then New York ha came later. But but it wasn't. But it would have been quite a a hardship to go, and and it wasn't anything that I could could consider at the time, just because of the way I was raised. Mm -hmm. And so, how long were you at this home before you had your your child? I was there for six months. Now most women only go for their third trimester you know when you start showing you don't really start showing too much until your fifth or sixth month but my family my 
pastor, they all felt like I needed to leave immediately. So as soon as I found out I was pregnant, which was in January of 71, um, they started making arrangements for me to go. And I was there by the 1st of March, and my baby wasn't born until the 3rd of September. You said that afterwards you lost your voice. Can you talk about that and why that happened? Well, up until I had the baby, even while I was at Sellers, Sellers was the name of the maternity home I went to, I was a very confident and assured young woman, and I did write, and and I wasn't afraid of just doing the best I could for myself in a way. But when I was sent away, and because I was told that I couldn't ever speak about the baby, we were told, this is a secret you take to your grave. And when I got home, I wasn't allowed to speak of it to anyone. So not in my family, not my mother, not my sisters, not any friends, though I had I was pretty much ostracized my senior year in high school because even though it's supposed to be a big secret, of course, everybody did know. And the father of the baby didn't want to hear about it either. So I'd gone through this life-transforming experience that affected me physically and emotionally and and spiritually too. And And I couldn't talk about it to anybody. And I didn't get any counseling. I didn't get any... When that happened, I became, I did lose my voice. I didn't know how to talk about anything. Then I felt very insecure and very, I just felt like I was mute in a way. And it wasn't until I moved to Portland 20 years ago and I took a writing class and I did a, a, I started writing a little bit. It was called The Language of Your Life and you had to write about a secret. And so this is a biggest secret I've kept for my entire life. And I wrote a little bit about that and started writing a little bit more. And then I went to a women's retreat and I was able to actually speak about it to other women. And a lot of healing came from that. And then I searched for my son and, and I found him. But And I think, and then so I started working really hard on the book and after I, I knew him and after a while, I thought, oh, I had a lot of healing from just the exercise of writing it. And I thought, oh, I don't need to finish this. You know, it's just like more for me until 2016 happened. And it's like, oh, no, <laughs> we're going backwards. And I just was because I think this is because there's so many, well, a million and a half young women in and women that were sent away, but very few of these stories have ever gotten out. People have no idea what it was like. And it's like the the B side of a record or the, you know, the flip other side of the coin to the abortion issue. It's it's still it's all about them have you know, the patriarchy or whoever, the the society or culture or whatever having um, wanting to control women's bodies and what we can do with our bodies and, you know, how sexual we can be or how we can dress or how we can talk or look and, you know, how we behave and what we can do with the what comes out of our bodies. And, you know. And it's interesting that there's a connection between controlling women's bodies and also controlling women's minds and voices. 
They're, right. right, exactly. That's very much part of it. Right. Once you get shut down in any way, you just it just sort of you start clamping down on everything, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I know that was the case for me. You said, my baby and I were being shoved under the carpet. Everyone wanted me gone. No one person asked me how I felt or what I wanted. At this point, what would you, if somebody did ask you at that point what you wanted, could you have said... Well, I definitely said I wanted to get married and keep my baby. But could I have said I want to be single and keep my baby and have you love me and support me? No, I don't think I could have said that. Mm-hmm. Given that right now we're having some of the similar debates about Roe v. versus Wade, right? And there are certain factions in the U.S. that would like to repeal that. What, having lived through that and also seen the other side of that, what do you think the consequences of that would be? I mean, what realistically would that look like for women if women did not have the choices that they have now? Well, I think there would be uh, an increase of unwanted pregnancies. And I think women would resort to having abortions regardless if if that's what they needed to do for themselves. Um, It's not uh, the same kind of... Women or young girls aren't ostracized the same way for being pregnant. And and in fact, in some ways, it's kind of flaunted or... um, you know, when you watch the Teen Mom TV show, it's just it's it's kind of a distorted idea sometimes too of of what it does mean to you know care for a child and you know what's involved and and what kind of support you need or um, I what I'm what is really bad is that we are taking away sex education again. I mean, not that it was ever that much in parts of this country, but. And when you, you know, when you're sticking to abstinence only, you're just asking for a lot of unwanted babies because, <laughs> or, 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 uh, or abortions and, and, you know, they should, um, so, I mean, that would be the first thing I think we need to do, but even, even then they're trying to control it and say, oh, you just can't have sex. I mean, it's just like, which is a little insane to think that you're going to tell any kind of, you know, raging hormone teenager that they're not going to have sex. I mean, they don't say that for the boys as much as they do for the young girls. And um, because it's still not okay, I think, in, in a lot of the country for women to be sexual beings. And so if we didn't, if we didn't have Roe v. Wade, um, I mean, thank goodness in Oregon. Oregon supports abortion at any, for anyone at any time, really. I mean, it's it's. There's only two states, us and Vermont, and then there's others that you know have are, are very open to allowing abortions. But there's 19 states that can will cut it off right as soon as, you know, it it gets. And I believe also parental consent is required in many states. Right. It is. It is, it is required. I would, well, like, I couldn't have, um, you know, 
even for birth control, sometimes you have to have parental consent to have that. And, and with to that, this day, to, yeah, to this day. And, and, uh, with Planned Parenthood being cut back and, and so women aren't getting just the health care that they need, you know, which is reproductive health care. Oh, it's, it's could be just devastating for so many women. And then so women, if they're forced to carry a baby to term and they don't have to give it up, but then, then what do you do? You, you, if you don't have any kind of support, if you don't have support of your family or you don't have, you don't have a way to go to school and have childcare, or you don't have a way to get a job and, you know, you, and you don't have any skills because you're 16 and, it just makes for it just it keeps the cycle of of poverty going in so many communities and you know when you have babies raising babies it's it's not that i, I mean i'm it's just not okay <laughs> i don't know how to say it I, at 17 i wasn't unfit i was more fit than the people who took my baby the the adopted mom had mental illness and she left the family when my son was two years old. So he really grew up without a mother. So I think it is a case by case kind of basis, but you still have to have in place the kind of uh, safety net to to help young mothers. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, you should help them not get pregnant in the first place. <laughs> By having good sex education and access to birth control and and reproductive um, health care, all of that, then if they do get pregnant, then they have a choice to make. They could choose not to to terminate, or they could choose to have the baby. But if they choose, there there needs to still be. If you're going to be pro-life, then you have to be pro-life from the get-go all the way till the kid is in college. Really, you know, you can't just say you've got to carry this baby to term and, and, and some States would make them do it regardless of whether it's rape incest or, I mean, can you imagine? Or in doesn't matter what age you are. Oh, so yeah, it could be, it would be devastating to go back to that. So in your case, you had the trauma of having been forced to give up your child and really having no other option. And then also a kind of generational trauma of losing your child. How did that story end for you? Because I was told it's always a secret, you never share. And I'd always been told that if to contact the child or try to in any way is extreme selfishness on my part. What, that, why, why was that? Because we, we were told that the child needed to grow up free from worry of ever having his or her privacy invaded. You know, your child just deserves to live the life that they've got. It's a better life. And that was, that's that it. was just that's assumed it. to that's, be true. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, but I have a lot of, you know, health issues in my family, especially with heart disease and, uh, and, and so I really felt like uh, my son needed to have that information, you know, just so he'd have it to watch. Diabetes, you know, depression, those kind of things that do come down the line, right? So uh, so I decided that, okay, 
regardless of how he might feel about me. And it's scary because what if he rejects me, which he could do, and and how can I handle that rejection? And, you know, he's a stranger. He was, you know, almost, he was over 30 at the time, um, 31, when I looked for him. And it just it was just really scary. But I decided that the pros outweigh the cons, that he did deserve to have the information. If he did want to know who I was, he deserved to know that. Because um, in a lot of the states, adoption records are still closed. An adoptee in Louisiana cannot go and say, I want to see my original birth certificate. It's not going to happen. So they don't have access to any kind of the information about their biological parents who really have a lot to do with how they are in this world, physically and emotionally even. And so I started looking and I was trying to do it just online. There's search angels that help people find each other. And I found a woman who was a private investigator and all she did was searches for Sellers Maternity Home. And she herself had been an adoptee at Sellers and she had searched for her mother and found her birth mother. And so then she became a private investigator, just focused on this because she had access to, or she knew how to get access to records that regular people don't. And um, so I I called her and we talked and $400 and 24 hours later, she had a name and a phone number. And so I asked her if she would call him first so he would have some kind of a know what's coming kind Uh of thing. Or or if he wanted to not speak to me, then she could give him the information that I wanted him to have if he chose not to speak to me. But he did, so that was good. (laughs) And then I came out, I went to Louisiana and met him like a couple of months later. And now you have a relationship with him? Yes, we do. I mean, we're still strangers in some ways. Um, But I was, since it's been 19 years now, or 18 years now that we've had a relationship, I I went to his wedding and I I got to go to his graduation from law school. And he has a son, my grandson. And ever since Gordon was five, he comes out to see his nanny, nanny Lonnie, and uh, Grandpa Roger. And then this last summer, Keith came with Gordon. So they were both out here for almost two weeks and, you know, went to the coast. And and we're still learning about each other um, in some ways. But, you know, that, you know, I lost 31 years. What do you hope readers will get from reading your story? I hope they understand that being sexual doesn't make you a bad person or an evil person, that it's quite normal, and and it just needs to be understood and, and dealt with appropriately by the young person and by the adults in their lives. And I, I want them to realize that this wasn't that long ago. This happened to me you know, less than 50 years ago. And it, and we're not that far away from it again. And we just need to be really vigilant about 
what we've achieved in terms of our reproductive rights and that we have to just do whatever it is that we can to make sure that we keep those rights. I want people to learn that it's not good to stuff your your feelings down. Because I had to do that, I had a lot of mental health issues, especially in my early 20s. There's just so many uh, um, assumptions made about young women who are sexual and that it's it's just um it's just not okay that we're made to feel that we're less than so i've been talking today to lani joe lee who has published unfit the tale of one pregnant teen in the bible belt before women had choice thank you so much oh thank you suzanne it was great to be here I am Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Get up, get up. Mm-hmm.